It's an interesting scene that is depicted in this vignette of John's gospel. Jesus has been arrested, spent the night being interrogated by the high priest. And now as the morning dawns, he's brought to Pilate, who's the governor, the Roman governor. And the only reason they bring him to Pilate is because the Jewish leaders don't have the authority to execute Jesus. And so their goal is to convince Pilate to do just that. Pilate asks them, what, is he, what has he done? What are you, why is he here? And they don't really answer. They just say, if we didn't have a good reason, we wouldn't be here. In other words, trust us. And I don't think Pilate does, but he goes in, takes Jesus, and he begins to talk with him. And out of that conversation comes just this, this little bit of discussion about truth. Jesus says, it's for this reason I came, to speak about the truth. Everyone who's interested in the truth listens to me. And Pilate answers with that famous question, what, what is truth? You see, Pilate has had enough dealings with, with the religious leaders to hear them talk about their truth. And it doesn't seem to be the same as Jesus' truth. Something doesn't seem to mesh between the two ideas. And you can almost see Pilate's mind turning as he's trying to figure it out. And as I was pondering this scenario and, and what is happening here, it, it struck me that, even though despite the title in the sermon, this is really, a, this is really a, an issue about truth more than it is justice. It, it's an issue about the danger of truth. As we see it modeled and taught and lived out, in the religious leaders who come and who are proclaiming truth and at the same time trying to execute Jesus. One of the, the things that comes out of this is that Pilate doesn't really want to condemn Jesus and have a good reason for it, but he comes up with a plan. Every year at Passover, he releases a prisoner. And I would guess that typically the prisoners he releases are the people who are in, are in prison for a petty crime. Maybe even not a lot of evidence, but they've been held for a while. They're not what you would call a threat to society. And it's pretty safe to let them go. But I think he knows if he puts up one of those guys against Jesus, they're probably going to pick Jesus. Let's... Let, let's, let's, not, let's keep Jesus and we'll let this guy go. So he tries to think of the worst guy he can find. He seems to be in Barabbas. Barabbas is, some translations say a robber. Probably a better, trans, better idea of what, he's, what he is is an insurrectionist. We might call him a terrorist. You know, he is a person who has created a riot, an uprising against the Roman government. More than likely, he has murdered people in the process of doing that. And in many ways, he's a menace to society. And so you have this, this dichotomy of people. You have, on the one hand, Barabbas, who is, who is a murderer, an insurrectionist, a terrorist, uh, a threat to, to society. And on the other hand, you have Jesus, who is a healer, a teacher, compassionate, loving, kind, merciful. All the things that we hope in a friend. And he puts them both in front of the people. And... The other Gospels tell us that he, that Pilate says to them, who do you want, Barabbas or Jesus? In John's Gospel, it seems to come out of the people. 
But either way, as the the dust settles, the people are yelling, give us Barabbas. Why would they choose Barabbas? And more than likely, why would the religious leaders encourage them to choose Barabbas? Because Barabbas is simply not Jesus. It wouldn't have mattered who they put up there. As long as you don't choose Jesus to release, we don't care. As long as it's not Jesus. There's something in that mindset about how we view truth. How we view our perspective of truth. And how easily we slide into a mindset of single-mindedness about things that we consider truth. We can get so wrapped up in, in this idea that we are, are firmly, that we firmly believe that we're committed to and, and we become so enamored with it that we don't realize the bigger picture anymore. It's all about this one thing. We see that in some of the social issues of our day. We see that in politics of our day. We see it in the church. Now, I'm not talking about the core elements of our faith. I'm talking about the other ways in which we might disagree with each other. Because the reality is most of the time, churches don't split and divide over deep theological issues, but over stuff like the color of the carpet and the color of the paint in the room or how we're going to do worship. But we, we get so enamored with our single issue that we miss the bigger picture. And we often we are so enamored with that single issue, we justify all kinds of stuff in the process. I was thinking about that this week as I was going back into my childhood. And when I was growing up, I had, I had three favorite sports teams. It was um, the Cincinnati Reds in baseball and the Ohio State Buckeyes in college football and Indiana University in college basketball. And... In those days, there was a particular person that was the face of each of those teams. For the Reds, it was Pete Rose. For Ohio State, it was Woody Hayes. And for Indiana, it was Bob Knight. Now, if you know anything about sports, you're probably thinking to yourself, man, that guy was messed up. <laughs> I mean, you might be thinking that anyway, but the sports, that was just confirm it. Pete Rose was banned from baseball and sent to prison because he gambled on games in which he was the manager of his team. And Woody Hayes was fired from his job after a long tenure at Ohio State because at the end of the game, the opposing player intercepted a pass and happened to run toward the sideline where he was and he grabbed the guy's helmet and punched him. And he didn't last very long after that. And Bob Knight has this long, long list of stuff that he's done, throwing chairs and vulgarity and, you know, and just bullying people. But growing up in Indiana... As an Indiana basketball fan, you make all kinds of excuses. And you defend him. I mean, you, you hear people say, you know, his players graduate. He's raised millions of dollars for the library. He, he doesn't get in trouble with, uh, with infractions from the NCAA. And not the least of which, his teams win. And you find all kinds of ways to, to figure it out. You know, as somebody said to me recently, you know, that... That when the, the game, when he got so mad at the officials that he took a chair and he threw it across the court. The Indiana fan explanation of that is that he saw a woman on the other side of the court who was standing and needed a seat. And so he <laughs> tossed her a chair. He was fired 
ultimately, what triggered it was that there was a videotape of him choking a player in a practice. And that's when that happened. Somebody else who's an Indiana fan grew up there, said that they were talking to their grandmother about it. She was a big Indiana fan, and her comment was, well, if he did choke the kid, he probably deserved it. Ay, ay, ay. But you know, it's, it's hard to see that when you're in the middle of it. Because it's, you know, to, to say something might be wrong with my perspective is to, is to eat at what we have felt true so long. And we do that with all kinds of things where we become so focused on these single issues. We become so focused on our view of truth that we don't even realize everything else that's going on around us. And all the ways in which we excuse other stuff as long as we hang on to this truth. And through the centuries, you see the church doing this over and over again. You know, the church persecuting and murdering people who have different theological positions. Murdering and persecuting people who oppose Christ. You, you find, you know, it, it, it blows my mind to, to picture the, the image of, of a captain standing on the deck of a slave ship reading the scriptures. And, and in the 60s, during the civil rights movement, the evangelical church distance itself itself from the civil rights movement because we didn't like the theology of Martin Luther King Jr. and others who were part of the leadership team. And so instead of being in Alabama marching for civil rights, which was the foundation of our church, we're just hiding away in our homes and our buildings because we don't want anyone to think that we have the same theology. And we become very sectarian in our views of truth. J.I. Packer says that there are four really unlovely things about being sectarian. One is elitism. We're the only ones who are right. And standoffishness, which is we don't associate with anybody who doesn't agree with us 100%. And narrowness, we don't consider any history or any people to be, to be right who aren't in our journey or aren't in our path and see things the way we do. And ultimately, there is underlying this a hidden arrogance that we're right. We're right about it all. And everybody, anybody who might disagree with us is wrong. It's important to believe truth. As Christians, truth is imperative to what it means to be a follower of Christ. We are not giving up truth. We are just realizing how we approach truth, how we think about truth, how we communicate truth, and realizing that there is truth and then there are truths. And there are other things. And often it's the other things that we become most passionate about. And so in later latter years of the church, There was a lot of passion and a lot of fighting and a lot of poor behavior about the kinds of clothes a person might wear or how long or short your hair was or whether you happened to wear a wedding ring or not. And those became became central issues that we would go to the death about. 
And I am convinced, as someone said to me recently, one of the reasons we struggle with that is because we, we don't want to commit ourselves to the hard work of thinking about the gray areas of life. We don't want to get, we don't want to think. We just want a formula. You know, we don't want to have to process stuff. We don't want to have to, to figure out an answer. Just tell me what to believe, how to believe it, and when to show up to believe it, and it will be good. But our faith calls for so much more than that. The reality is everything that's important about what we believe is intention. God is sovereign. Human beings are free. Jesus is fully human. Jesus is fully God. We're saved by grace. We're expected to live and work for the kingdom. And as followers of Christ, we are called to think about those things and to process them and to work through them and to try to figure them out. And I, and I, I firmly believe that as we begin to think about those things and as we, we distance ourselves from these narrow viewpoints about, about how we view some of this stuff, the way through that and the way to... And the way to, to come to the right mindset is to see truth in the context of the cross. Because when you see truth in the context of the cross, it's pretty hard to be arrogant. Because the cross is continually calling us to humility and vulnerability and weakness and surrender and sacrifice. It's it's the plan of Christ. As Jesus is standing there in front of Pilate, he could have broken those ropes that were holding his hands behind his back and grabbed Pilate by the throat and said, this is it, I've had enough, and taken out the whole group and said, all right, this is my kingdom. And you're going to listen to me. Instead, Jesus proves truth. That he is the way, the truth, the life by going to the cross. And that's the calling on us. And what happens when we see truth from the context of the cross, we, re- we will refuse to use people or to manipulate people as pawns in order to promote what we consider truth. And we also refuse to, to hurt people, to, to, to use people, to let people feel the hurt and the pain of, of, our, of, the, of the result of our truth unnecessarily. Now, I'm not saying we don't debate truth. I'm not saying that we don't, we don't stand up for truth. But if standing up for truth means that the only way we can get to the end is by manipulating people, using people, hurting people, something is wrong with our perspective of truth. Now, sometimes you you have to stand up and you say, you know, this is true. But even that we do in a spirit of humility and a spirit of love and kindness because our temptation is arrogance. And when people oppose us, we don't figuratively punch them in the mouth. We love them. 
We care for them. We use the same strategy that Jesus uses of vulnerability and humility and love and sacrifice and surrender. I think one of the reasons we don't like to do that is because something in the back of our minds is afraid that this is losing. And to a certain extent, we're right, but it's losing to win. And, and we, want, we don't want to lose. We want to stand up and win now. But the strategy of Christ is you win by losing. You overcome by surrendering. You make a difference by being vulnerable and transparent. Something about that mindset causes people to say, that's different from everybody else. I'd like to hear more about that truth. In David Kinnaman's book, Unchristian, what a new generation really thinks about Christianity and why that matters. He tells a story about a friend of his named Josh who's a pastor in the Los Angeles area. And Josh got a burden for how people see the church. And as he talked with them, particularly college students, he realized that the, the impression that people were getting of the church is arrogance. We've got the truth, you don't. And we're going to ram it down your throats. And so he decided to try and experiment. And it took a little bit to convince the leaders of his church. But they eventually consented. And he said, we're going to have, we're going to do a five-week series that we're going to call Confessions of a Sinful Church. And they made up postcards and they distributed them to all the area college campuses around, the, anywhere in the vicinity of their church. And they, and they stated, on these five, next five Sundays... We are going to confess the sins of the church, one each week. And we would would invite you to come and to join us and to hear our apologies. And the first week was we apologize for our self-righteousness and our hypocrisy. And the second week was we apologize for promoting slavery and endorsing slavery. And the third week was we apologize for mistreating homosexuals. And the fourth week was we apologize for the medieval crusades. And the fifth week was we apologize for saying that the earth is flat. <laughs> and he said, you cannot believe the overwhelming response we got. He said, just, just handing out the postcards was more successful than we could have ever imagined. Students would look at these and say, wow, this is different. And, and they came to the church and they, and they listened to the heartfelt apology of the church. And they heard the truth about Christ proclaimed. And he got all kinds of responses. And he said, I guess what, what we were trying to do was to, to help people. To, we, we realized that, that the only way people are going to listen to the truth is if, if they see that we're transparent and honest and vulnerable. And we're trying to put aside arrogance. And maybe, just maybe, with that mindset, they might actually come and hear the real truth of Jesus Christ. 
And it created an amazing scenario for the gospel. I keep coming back to what Paul writes about Jesus in the second chapter of his letter to the Philippians. Where he says, Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. That Jesus, who had every right in the world to grab and cling to and and use all of his eternal power against his enemies. He had every right to do that, but instead took on human flesh. And came in appearance as a man and humbled himself and taking the very nature of a servant. He humbled himself to death. Even death on a cross. And Paul prefaces that statement by saying, have the same mind in you. That was in Christ Jesus. Please hear me. I'm not saying that we should compromise truth. We need to be firm about what we believe and the truth of the gospel. But how are we communicating that? What are people seeing of the truth in our lives? What do people think about Jesus who says he is the truth when they listen to us and they watch us live out truth? Gracious Heavenly Father, You know our struggle. It's hard for us to admit that we're wrong. It's hard for us to admit that we don't have all the answers. Quite frankly, it's hard for us to love when people oppose us and oppose you. So we pray that you would work in us. We pray that you would give us the ability to live the truth of who you are and of the gospel and the kingdom in the spirit of Christ. And we pray this through his grace. Amen. I'd like to invite you to join me in the prayer of confession that's printed in your bulletin. Pray together. Reigning King, at your cross, we find the beginning of each of our stories. Sinners in need of God's grace. We confess that in our pride, we neglect it, and in our judgment, we withhold it. Forgive us, Lord, for the relationships in which we focus on past sins 
instead of present redemption, in getting revenge instead of seeking forgiveness, for excluding rather than welcoming those who reflect your image, for worrying about gaining power rather than embracing humble sacrifice. By your strength, may we no longer regard anyone from a worldly point of view, but through the eyes of grace and redemption. Merciful Lord, forgive us for the walls we've built out of hate, the boundaries we have created out of differences, and the lines we have drawn out of fear, and empower us to live as ambassadors of light in the darkness of this world. Amen.